Literature makes you feel and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on the page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Stijn Vervaat and together with my colleagues from the Literature, Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Yasemin Nurjan Hadjiolu, a PhD student at the University of Oslo who has just submitted her dissertation titled Thinking Through Poems. And our topic today is the interrelation between fictional characters composing poems, emotions and female agency in late 18th century novels. Thank you for joining us, Yasmin. Thank you for having me. I'd like uh, to start by mentioning that you work on late 18th, early 19th century literature. This brings us, of course, to the emergence of the Gothic, primarily in English, but you also have an interest in Russian literature, yeah. to which we will come back later. You've just completed and submitted your PhD dissertation titled Thinking Through Poems, Composition and Decision-Making in Late 18th Century Women's Novels. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> in your dissertation, you focus more specifically on female agency and how female characters' practices of composing poems in late 18th, early 19th century novels help them make decisions. Could you, for a starter, tell us something more about the novels and authors you have studied? Are these canonical or also lesser known ones? Why are these so well suited to study the questions you were interested in? What was their status at the time of publication and now? And how are they usually perceived in scholarship? Yeah, so I cover a couple of authors starting with Anne Radcliffe, who is now sort of seen as a canonical author of the Gothic form. And then I move into authors, female authors, who are seen as sort of reproducing in a sort of trashy, uh, popular culture way the work that Anne Radcliffe does. So that's the kind of how it's been traditionally seen, like these imitators like Eleanor Sleeth and Charlotte Dacre. But what I'm really interested in is building on feminist criticism that has kind of given this literature political meaning or uncovered the political meaning that was in that literature. For example, in Anne Radcliffe's novels and a lot of gothic fiction, women's gothic fiction at the time, you have heroines who are sort of trapped in castles in what we would now call abusive situations. And feminist criticism has revealed how these sort of fantastical situations are actually in very direct discourse with the political situation for women at the time. But in your dissertation, you also focus on the practice of composing. So could you tell us something more about the poems that figure in these novels? So why is it so important or interesting that we look into these poems? So haven't they attracted scholarly attention before? Yeah. So a sort of traditional reading has been that into the emerging form of the novel, which is sort of becoming a huge thing in the 18th century, some authors would insert the more traditional form of the poem to add cultural prestige into this growing form. And I suppose my work complicates that. I have to pay credit to some fantastic scholars who have complicated what the poem in the novel means in this time period, and that includes the feminist work of Ingrid Horrocks, who wrote a wonderful book recently called Women Wanderers, which looks at fragments of poems in these Gothic novels to suggest how these fragments show that the heroine's thinking is 
fragmented because her time is not her own. So this is sort of linking psychology or sort of a, t- a type of focus on the heroine's thoughts with the patriarchal situation she is in. And with my focus on cognitive perspectives and composition, what I'm looking at more is how characters actually construct these poems themselves. So rather than characters not necessarily being in control of the poems, I focus on poems that the novel actually represents female characters as very carefully constructing at length. And I look at how basically that shows how characters can construct their own fictions and their own thinking using this sort of powerful form of literature. So now you've mentioned that these characters are constructing their own compositions or or own poems within these novels. So this could perhaps bring us to the topic of decision-making and female agency, which is uh, crucial in your your dissertation. But didn't the late 18th century novel emerge as the backdrop of the English reception of the French Revolution in an era of distrust of any radical political and feminist thought, as you also note in your uh, dissertation. So how can we understand then female agency at, at the backdrop of very conservative, rather fixed notions of female morality going hand in glove with, for example, the, the tale of the fallen woman? Yeah, so I suppose the contribution I hope to make is, as well as these fictions very powerfully revealing patriarchal abuses and This was, of course, a time in British culture following the French Revolution when there was a lot of radical thinking, but there was also a huge backlash to to radicalism. As well as these Gothic novels revealing patriarchal abuses, I also want to look at how they model how you can literally navigate your way through these situations. So rather than the poems sort of being added in later as an oh, the figure of the author has added something to explain the situation in retrospect... I'm taking a different perspective that these writings that are sort of inserted in, very self-consciously inserted in as having been constructed in response to the immediate dilemma in the plot, they kind of show how with the tool of writing you can then construct construct a fiction or a working idea that the characters couldn't crucially do without having these tools. Theoretically, you start from two interrelated strengths. On the one hand, distributed cognition, and on the other hand, predictive processing. So could you brief, briefly uh, say something about how we should understand these notions? Where do they come from? And not in the least, why are they so useful to discuss uh, composition on the one hand and plot and emotions on the other hand? Yeah, um, so distributed cognition are used through philosophy of mind. And basically it looks at how the objects that we use in everyday life uh, enable and actually part of our cognition and a good example of this is uh, like diaries or the notes we take Mm -hmm. or maps where aspects of our thinking like memory are enabled and absolutely sort of part of this object so it's about thinking about not just cognition as as just your brain but actually Mm -hmm. cognition as all the objects that we use around us and this is particularly great for thinking about 
cultural objects and arts objects because there's there's such a richness to what what processes they they enable. Mm-hmm. So literature would also be one of those yeah. cultural objects in in this respect. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and painting and 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 all the sort of um, smaller forms within this, like uh, poetry and novels, mm-hmm. all these mm-hmm. cognitive processes we can really go into to see what specifically they allow us to do. Mm-hmm. And with predictive processing, um, the sort of the sort of really interesting aspect about it is it looks at aspects of our cognition that we sort of more traditionally think about. Um, as being beyond our control and nothing to do with agency, mm-hmm. uh, like memory and emotions. And it says that actually these responses are culturally learned. Mm-hmm. And not only do we culturally learn things like emotions, these um, um, these aspects such as our, our emotions, we actually often unconsciously choose them because we've also culturally learned what is what choosing that emotion is going to change about future events. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very different way if of thinking about, for example, if we apply it to when it's applied to literature, if a character <clears throat> such as a sort of female character in a sentimental novel or in a gothic novel that, that, that has all these extreme emotions, mm-hmm. it's such a great way of revising how we perceive that as being like the total opposite of agency to thinking about, wait, if this character is responding this way, what social and cultural response will this have later in the novel and is it actually a form of agency mm-hmm. now that you mentioned agency maybe we could um, discuss a bit more in detail the the practices of, of composition and how could your uh, theoretical approach um, from related to uh, distributed cognition actually uh, shed no light on on the female heroine's composition practices in the novels you have uh, looked at. So, uh, you note in your dissertation, for example, that the late 18th, early century, uh, early 19th century, saw a tension between two dominant notions of of composition. On the one hand, we have these neoclassical theories providing a set of rules for comp- composing a poem, or uh, very often some of those rules were modeled after composition rules for for painting, painting landscapes and so on. But on the other hand, we have uh, emerging romantic ideas about originality. Yeah? So perhaps we could take one of the better-known examples you discuss, Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Rodolfo, to illustrate or discuss the question of composition and, and related to theories of uh, distributed uh, cognition and extended mind. Yeah, Um so The Mysteries of Udolpho is a very long novel and um, gothic criticism has often focused on a fairly small section of the novel when the heroine is actually sort of trapped in mm-hmm. a very uh, cliché gothic castle. Mm-hmm. But a much larger part of the novel is extremely long landscape descriptions. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the question is, what what do we do with them? I, I am building on um, fantastic work by uh, scholars such as Jane Stabler, who have looked at how the landscapes and poems in the novel represent forms such as ut pictora poesis, which is mm-hmm. like painting, like poetry, as in the poems and paintings already have some hints that they've sort of been painted or constructed. 
But what I build on that with um, cognitive approaches is focusing in much more on how the poem and the landscapes are shown to be constructed and specifically how this allows the heroine to imagine things that she couldn't imagine without using these sort of mental tools of, okay, I'm going to add, I'm going to visualise and imagine adding a line there in in this landscape I'm imagining, or I'm going to add a dolphin into this Mm -hmm. painting or into this poem. I'm going to add a camel there, and this is going to completely change the poem I'm imagining. Um, So what these poems in the novel do, and I think they're kind of overlooked because sometimes they're quite kind of funny and and Mm -hmm. ridiculous, uh, like a character's sort of imagining these seemingly nonsensical uh, imagined narratives. But what these novels really foreground is how using these instructions from neoclassical painting and poetry enables her to form these very specific, rather surprising uh, poetic narratives. So these poems are actually uh, not just a kind of echo chamber of characters' thoughts, but mm. they, they move the plot forward or they play a, a more consti- constitutive role in the novel? Or? Yeah. Um, so I suppose one one um, example could be a character, the, the heroine in the novel is, is, is often um, Emily, is often seen as the prototypical uh, heroine without agency. Mm-hmm. She's uh, over-emotional. She faints a lot. Um, <laughs> she has been read by some critics as having imaginations that are fantastical to the point that they are delusional. Yeah. Um, but if we look closely at, at the poems and what she actually constructs, we can see that some of these emotions are actually constructed through her her use of painting and poetry in cultural forms for example there's a um one thing i one example i focus on in my thesis is the the villain of the of the um novel um montoni mm-hmm. who i think through feminist criticism we can we can safely say would now be called a sort of abusive patriarchal figure um keeps encouraging her to to marry against her will and then tries to force her to marry against her will and in her in some of her imaginative thinking and poetry she constructs him into being an incredibly monstrous stereotypical visual figure and i think this this construction is important because it it strongly revises this view that these are just you know the hysterical mm-hmm. lack of agency responses mm-hmm. of a female character instead we can see that it's an example of a character constructing a, a very vivid visual um, image that allows her to to refuse, to, allows her in her cognition to refuse and to justify her responses to this character. Yeah, you've mentioned uh, that Emily, the the main character of of uh, um, the mistress of Udolfo, has is often reacting over emotionally she's fainting uh, a lot so perhaps we could discuss uh, emotions and and characters uh, decision making a, a bit more so in your discussion of the poems and their function in the novel um, these emotions play often a decisive role and an important reference in your understanding or 
uh, interpreting of character, characters' emotions is the work of the psychologist and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett, who has put forward the theory of constructed emotions, as we uh, touched upon also at, uh, earlier in our uh, conversation. So could you tell us something more about her concept and why it was particularly helpful for developing your, your argument and, and a new reading of these uh, novels? When we see a female character who is responding with a very strong emotive response we we've sort of almost almost been trained to see this as a, as the complete opposite of agency mm -hmm. um but what feldman barrett um conceptualizes within psychology is that emotions are constructed they are something we learn we learn to take our feelings and responses and culturally Um, learn how to categorize them under certain words. And uh, what's what's interesting about Feldman Barrett is she 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 puts such an emphasis on on the importance of language to mm -hmm. categorize our emotions. And once we think about this within the frame of the novel, we we can also add the idea of narratives. But we can also add, I suppose, from distributed cognition, the tool that someone with a pen in their hand has to be able to write in the emotion yeah. that they have mm -hmm. as well. So perhaps that's where the uh, that's why uh, Feldman Barrett's theory is so helpful when discussing literary text because she stresses the the role of language and uh, literary works are of course made of language and narratives. Absolutely. And um I suppose I can give some examples of um texts in which it's it's not only that the sort of emotions and narratives used but there's also um it's also drawn attention to that characters are sort of inserting emotions mm -hmm. if, if from this perspective um so one of the weirdest um book uh, weirdest and most wonderful book that i touch on my in my thesis is um hardly read uh novel by amelia opie mm -hmm. um called The Only Child, uh, Portia Belenden, uh, out of print thing um, from the 1820s mm -hmm. towards the end of Amelia Opie's career. And Amelia Opie is known as a author of, I suppose, moral tale fiction. She became a sort of darling of the Victorian period for writing tales of, of fallen women, mm -hmm. women who so socially and sexually transgress and bad things happen to them as a response. Usually they end up dead and Um, often, often glad they're going to die because they will set a good moral example for their children. So, so sort of um, mm -hmm. not not popular now, um, but pop very popular at the time. Um, but one of her um, sort of really strange later novels, um, The Only Child, is written in first person by a heroine who is journalizing, and as she's journalizing. Um, she sort of has emotional responses that don't make any sense in the immediate plot at all. Um, for example, early in the novel, um, someone she thinks is going to propose to her uh, doesn't. Uh, he leaves her for someone else. And Portia's response, uh, the heroine Portia, um, It, within this genre, we might expect her to be repentant because her behavior mm -hmm. was so-and-so. Um, but instead, her emotional response is um, the feeling of 
bloodthirsty revenge, mm-hmm. um, which which is really just it doesn't make any sense. And then as the novel progresses, um, you kind of see how she is a master of textual and literary manipulation. She's always she's writes poems and sort of inserts emotions into them, and in, that are not supposed to be there, especially, um, I might add, for uh, a sort of moral feminine character. These are not the responses that a female character should be having. And w- what's really sort of, um, from a sort of nerdy perspective, what's sort of fascinating about this novel is that uh, Opie, the author, or I suppose is represented as the, the fictional character doing this, is that they highlight these emotional words for us. So there's all mm-hmm. these strange emotional responses are actually literally italicized in the text in case we miss them. And I, I suppose from a perspective of um, predictive processing and, and distributed cognition together, it's about how, I don't know, it's about the text showing us that this this character who's very well versed in literature, it, it says so in the text, and also loves writing and playing with text, has has this tool to actually shape her own emotions mm-hmm. and has the sort of tool at her hand, the, the pen to sort of say, actually, at this moment, I'm feeling vengeful. Mm-hmm. Um, so are these poems in a way of uh, working through her emotions to um, some extent? <laughs> or could we rather see or perceive these novels as, um, as offering or contributing to a more fine-grained understanding of the range of emotions known to readers at the time or...? Um. Yeah. Um, so she, what, what she, she represents herself as working through yeah. them. So she, mm-hmm. what, what's wonderful is this is um, another reason why this, this this novel is sort of pure gold is because this is this has been read as sort of moral moral women's fiction, but actually it's so caught up in all sorts of ideas from romanticism and and romantic um, uh, writing and and feeling at the time. So this this characters always says, oh, these are emotions just just naturally coming from me and mm-hmm. therefore I should follow through with them, which mm-hmm. is a very romantic notion. So to add add an even further layer of complexity, um, the character is kind of also using the genre of romanticism or romantic writing as a tool and saying, yes, yes, it is rather strange that I, I uh, something within me is saying I have I ha- this character has to die, but it's a feeling I have. And therefore, I have to do it. Um, and I suppose that that's very interesting um, in terms of cultural forms. But I, I sort of, I do, to, to answer your question, um, in terms of what does this do within society, mm-hmm. um, as well as shaping her own thoughts, this character is represented as in a very strange way, feeding emotional responses to other characters. So what she does is she goes up to rather simple characters who are um, not not the brightest. And she sort of says, by the way, often she gives them poems that kind of say, by the way, you feel like this, don't you? And then immediately they sort of say, oh, yes, this, this is exactly how I feel. And in fact, I thought of it myself. This, this is entirely my own thinking. And to, to zoom out a bit, um, on what what that does within the whole genre of the tale, mm-hmm. what she does is she kind of convinces characters to do things 
to get her own way. And she also convinces them and and to a large part at times the reader that this is working exactly as a moral tale should. Mm-hmm. She she is a moral just as ordinary um moral lady learning of of her wrong deeds, even though as a consequence if you if you sort of closely read the text of, of her actions, she sort of bumps off and and causes the deaths of characters her in her, in her way of marrying as she wants. And I suppose what's interesting about her using these characters as almost like puppets by giving them emotional mm-hmm. suggestions is Opie is really playing with how emotions and narratives work within social understandings of women's morality. Mm-hmm. Because as she reveals, there's such a fine line between absolute fiction, as in fi- fiction that the, the heroine is um, writing and the heroine is using, and social thinking and or social narratives and the fallen woman tale about what happens to a woman if she socially uh, or politically um, transgresses. Opie really plays with how this is, this connects fiction with our independent thinking and also with social narratives of, of what will happen. Mm-hmm. So was she to some extent and also um, mocking or making fun of the way in which readers tended to respond to those emotional poems or or to characters that are overreacting emotionally? I think so. I I think what's I, I think she pulls along the reader for long sections mm-hmm. and then after long sections you realize well, she said she feels all these things, but actually she's ended up somewhere completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some very curious sections of the text that, that sort of demand being looked at further, which is where she's kind of telling characters, oh, you feel this way. And they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely, I feel this way. And then and then she's almost like a sort of scientist, sort of really messed up scientist is like, but why do you feel like that? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Like you've said, she she tells this really sort of hapless character called Lord Annerley, oh, you want to claim revenge for me, don't you? And she's like, oh yeah, like absolutely, I'm so angry. And she's like, she, she, she convinces him into this role to do her sort of dirty work for her. And then she's almost like a scientist. She's kind of like, can you can you explain why though? And mm-hmm. and he just he just... He just makes things up. He can't. It makes no sense that he feels this way. So there are these th- sections of the text that sort of where Opie is almost sort of psychologically or philosophically probing to what extent she can manipulations work when you sort of give people social or fictional narratives that also give you a template for your behavior. Like mm-hmm. if she gives this male character the role of the revenge hero, he just goes with it <laughs> in the same way that the reader or other characters go with the moral tale narrative for a female character because they're so familiar with it that they they sort of bulldoze through it with their thinking, mm-hmm. whether it makes sense or not. So to some extent, could we then read her novels uh, as a kind of um, comment upon what was at the time socially expected or what kind of emotions were socially um, acceptable and and is she going against the grain of what was uh, socially acceptable for women in a patriarchal society or how do we move then from acceptable emotions on the one hand to kind of moral questions that uh, touch upon much more broader topics in in society Um, yeah um so i suppose what my 
thesis or, or thinking of voids is suggesting that Opie is kind of inserting specific values into her text that that suggest this is what we should do. Instead, what she's kind of demonstrating is almost a method for how to tear apart and see the sort of intricate workings of how uh, gendered narratives work. As, as I mentioned, both the fall and tail narrative and also sort of narratives of, of heroic masculinity. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost like a philosophy of mind exercise. And and of course that I I, I very much think that this is this is a political um contribution in itself in itself because it sort of shows it's showing to the reader how you can test um narratives and what formulates them. Uh, what emotions are expected from from people of different genders, how an emotion is expected to mean that you think in a particular way, mm-hmm. you will act in a particular yeah. way, and and that society will end up behaving in a particular way. Because characters who are not sort of versed in composition, they they very much act like puppets. You just sort of prod them onto these narratives mm-hmm. and off they go. Mm-hmm. Whereas the character who can compose, and of course the the re- the readership of of this um of these texts i think might not necessarily have access or be very familiar with the intricate workings of um politi- great f- political philosophers like mary wollstonecraft mm-hmm. but they will be versed in um the politic uh, the sorry the the compositional strategies of poetry they'll know mm-hmm. what a tragedy yeah. is so they will be able to see how how these things link together mm-hmm. um yeah. So these novels have actually a, a quite uh, clear political uh, potential, and they also do intervene in, in, in political and philosophical debates. You mentioned uh, philosophy of mind. So how could we then understand that these women writers are actually participating in philosophical debates, not perhaps by writing treatises or pamphlets or or polemical text, but but in an in another way that is maybe perhaps um, not that obvious at first sight, or or maybe in a way that has been overlooked by criticism so far. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think this is something that I very much want to develop is broadly how um, women's writing of of the 18th century and early 19th centuries is often linked to sentimentalism and this sentimentalism Mm -hmm. is tied to a lack of agency. However, in the 18th century, um, such a focus in philosophy of mind is, um, are all these large questions about how we construct our thinking Mm -hmm. and and how we construct our moral thinking. And I I just, I, I very much want to look further into how we can look at women's writing at the time, uh, examples of women's writing at the time, as participating in these conversations and debates about philosophy of mind through characters and social narratives that depend on these extreme emotional responses. And as I've suggested with Amelia Opie, um, if, if we if we read closely, we, we don't we don't even have to dig that deep because often you, you, you or, or you, there are examples of heroines um, who are prompting, who are almost uh, experimentally prompting emotions to show how they connect to morals and narratives and and all sorts of um, thinking. And the, these sections are not really 
they don't have to be there. They're, they're not part mm -hmm. of, of, the, yep. of the plot per se. Um, so I, I think that's something that can be very much developed. And I think it's important as well because it's another way of thinking about the contribution of writing, women's writing at this time to politics. Um, so it's not what one way, um, to, to put it crudely, is, is you look in these texts and find um, how they connect to um, politi political ideas or specific political values. But another way, uh, I suppose, coming back to the, the whole um, question from distributed mind of how we use mm -hmm. texts in everyday life, um, if we look at if if we develop the sort of approach of composition, these texts actually model, or I, I don't know if we can even say teach um, readers how they how they can do their own, if you want to say philosophical thinking, mm -hmm. how you can probe how people depend on emotions and morals and narratives and how how they see these constellations as fitting together. So it's not about these texts being didactic in terms of values, but in terms of actually presenting tools to to to, to uh, female readership to probe these questions. It, it's giving them sort of philosophical tools mm -hmm. as well as compositional tools. Yeah. So literature really as a kind of a political philosophical laboratory on the one hand, and as really a kind of set of tools that readers then could not only reflect upon, but maybe also try out themselves. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you have also done archival work for your PhD research, meaning that you have not just been uh, using printed editions of, of these authors, but also gone to look into perhaps their correspondence or their own notes uh, that they used as a kind of um, um, tool in, in terms of... Um, extended cognition or distributed cognition. Could you tell us something about the advantages or the need for archival research when we're discussing 18th century uh, fiction specifically? I had a look at letters in which Emilia Opie is herself sending to female members of her family mm -hmm. moral narratives of okay. if you... Mm -hmm. um, if you get engaged to this man, do you know what will happen to you? And this was ab <laughs> an absolute delight to transcribe because yeah. I had sort of two librarians behind me sort of trying to pick apart this sort of text. And it was like, if you will uh, get engaged to this man, you're, you will not only die, you, your, your, your eyes will dissolve, blood will pour <laughs> okay. out of them, your brain will pour out of your ears, you will bite your parents. We had a fantastic dialogue with, with the sort of librarian who was helping me trying to work. Is that really bite? Yes, it's bite. You will bite your parents <laughs> yeah. and then then you will die. Like so what 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 was sort of what this highlighted sort of amplified, or this this is just one of the examples of, of quite a lot of archival work, but that one's great because it really shows that these are not just fictional narratives. Uh, mm -hmm. Opie's handing them out as, as actual um, real material. And not only that, in, in, this, in this particular um, example, she's given the names and biographical information of the people this has happened to. Um, so the sort of incredible, appreciating the incredible work that these fictional narratives that in, she's publishing uh, mm. at the same mm. time is doing this um, 
these how far fictional and moral and social narratives about women's behavior are intertwined it's mm -hmm. it's interesting mm -hmm. how op plays all, on all sorts of ends with with that sort of stuff mm -hmm. so it's really impossible to disentangle literature yeah. and life or letters and life yeah mm -hmm. particularly when you have a figure like Amelia opie who's mm -hmm. sort of who's writing who's, who's writing this stuff as well yeah. uh, as <laughs> fictional sets she's a very strange biographically i think she must have been a very strange person mm -hmm. so, <laughs> yeah yeah um You've worked mostly on, on English uh, fiction or, or fiction written in English, but you also read Russian and you have some plans to um, work on authors uh, from Russia as well. Um, so could you tell us something about your plans and how perhaps have these literary models that you discuss in your PhD thesis have migrated from England to Russia? Was it through France or was it through Germany or was it directly um could you tell us uh, something about your future research or, yeah. or your plans to uh... i found that in um russian literature by women and non-binary writers um this form of the cliched gothic poem within a gothic tale is very much used and then I had a look at some fantastic work by um, people like Catherine Bowers, who are looking at how authors such as Anne Radcliffe with, with Mysteries of Udolpho were extremely popular within the early 19th century Russian context to the mm -hmm. extent that there were fake Anne Radcliffe novels mm -hmm. all, all, all over the place. And these, these sort of migrated um, via French translation, and some of them were also made up Uh, and some of them were books that were not by Anne Radcliffe, just given a different name. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose, oh, well, I, I'm not supposing because I, I sort of, it, it's in the texts. Mm -hmm. um, for example, in Durova uh, Alexandrov's um, short story, The Sulphur Spring, uh, who is a um, non-binary author, um, they are interested very much. So the, the the heroine of that plot composes a poem, a, a very cliched gothic poem. And then there's a sort of long section after that in which the character and another character are discussing how composition works. And I was thinking, well, like, bingo. And <laughs> um, and not only that, but uh, Durov Alexandrov writes in their um, autobiography that they, they're a fan of Anne Radcliffe. So it what what I'm interested in is, is not like saying oh British in, mm -hmm. authors influenced the yeah. Russian context. What I'm interested in is the potential that this conversation about philosophy of mind, particularly in regard to gender and agency, was something that was continued through conversation and debate through this very popular cultural accessible literary form, sort of. Trans-Europe, like a, 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 across countries. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned now the name of uh, Nadezhda Durova, uh, and you thought that she was a non-binary uh, person. So could you tell us something about her biography? She has had a fascinating life, hasn't she? Yeah. Um, so um, there's currently some um, work in progress by... Um, 
Dr. Margarita Weissman on revising um, our thinking about um, Durava Alexandrov's um, gender identity based on archival evidence of how they write about their own experience. Mm -hmm. um, but to say a bit about how they are represented within popular imagine within the popular imagination yeah. mm -hmm. um, in in Russian culture now. So. Um, Durova Alexandrov is um, represented patriotically as a um, as a woman who cross-dressed as a man mm -hmm. so that they could join the Napoleonic Wars and they became an officer mm -hmm. um, and then retired to write uh, gothic trash fiction. <laughs> yeah. uh, most importantly, obviously, that's obviously the most important mm -hmm. part. Yeah, so it, it would be interesting, or it, it is important, not not just interesting, to um, look, I think, at the history of Russian 19th century fiction or any, any historical mm -hmm. fiction and to show that genders beyond woman and man are represented within mm -hmm. Russian romanticism, are at the heart of it, and are part of these ideas of how gender and agency and composition so work so th this is not new this is this is this is central to writing that was in high regard so for, for example um pushkin was um was publishing um uh, durova alexandrov's work mm -hmm. so yeah so they were right in there with with russian romanticism which which is often which is not only the, the romanticism is not just connected to sort of this highly idealistic sort of great um, aesthetics it's also very much connected to national idealism so that that's an interesting avenue i think mm -hmm. yeah thank you for that to conclude i would like to ask you whether you have a, a reading recommendation for our listeners oh yes um so i like any romantic period novel with the word confessions in it because like it usually um it's usually like an indicator that th these um, narrators are literally going to be talking to demons and that's sort of mm -hmm. the best kind of romantic uh, novels for example James Hogg but coming to the stuff that I've looked mm -hmm. at in my dissertation um, Charlotte Dacre's Confessions of the Nun of Saint-Omer so that's that's another novel that's generally been seen as following the structure of a moral tale mm -hmm. ultimately um, but I think when you uh, look at those wonderful poems uh, you can see that it, it's actually a bit more complicated. That there's, I think there's there's more work to be done there, really, as well as it being a good read. So in in the poems, uh, the narrator changes gender, mm -hmm. um, and also the heroine of the novel often perceives her actions through the prism of them being masculine heroic actions. Again, a little a little bit like the work done in Opie, but but to a greater extent. So she doesn't measure her success by by being a good heroine she measures that by being a good hero and i think mm -hmm. that's been overlooked very much by categorizing these types of works as just women's moral fiction yeah. how 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 conservative is it it overlooks how like this confessions is in dialogue with all sorts of very complicated romantic with a capital r mm -hmm. um confessions and do and does some really interesting work Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>